In less than a year, our podcast has gone from an average of 10,000 downloads a month to 50,000 downloads. What made the difference? You leaving us a five-star review. The more positive reviews, the more the algorithm picks us up, and more people are confronted by the law and gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us press forward the crown rights of King Jesus by leaving us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks. That's why I named my book uh, after this conference. <laughs> anyway, it's uh, really marvelous to be here. It's great to be with Joel and Jared and uh, to, we, to be with you too. And, uh, you know, I was actually given the title for this talk. That's often the way it works. Uh, I did a talk at the University of Idaho uh, entitled uh, Toxic Matriarchy, and people thought that was my idea. I was actually said, we want you to do a talk, but it must be called Toxic Matriarchy. So I said, okay, I'll roll with it. Uh, Children as Artillery is the title of this talk. And, uh, you know, honestly, when I, when I heard the title, uh, immediately what came to my mind was uh, circus tents, you know, and the guy who gets in the cannon, you know, the human cannonball. You know, and, and a shot across, you know, all three rings of the circus and lands in a net. I also thought of uh, what brought this, uh, another thing that came to mind was uh, Super Dave Osborne. Does anybody remember Super Dave? You know, the ne'er-do-well daredevil who dies in every stunt, you know, and just somehow comes back next week for another show. And then I thought about my time at Harvard Divinity School and the uh, quest to expunge from the hymnal anything that sounds militaristic. I don't know if you were aware of this, but once upon a time in, you know, the good old days uh, before they got to pronouns, they were trying to get out, you know, uh, you know, hymns about Christian soldiers and stuff like that. So those were the things that came to mind. But above all, I thought about Immanuel Kant and the categorical imperative. Now, I know that the rest of you probably also thought about Immanuel Kant and the categorical imperative. So I, I should probably explain why uh, this came to mind. Now, this isn't a course in modern philosophy or deontological uh, ethics, but uh, aren't you glad? <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's good to be acquainted with what's gone on in modern philosophy uh, because it has uh, uh, influenced our world in ways that are hard to appreciate. I know it's a lot of fun to make fun of ivory tower academics because it's easy for us to more or less write them off as irrelevant and out of touch with the real world. The problem with that is they're not interested in the world as it is now. They have an influence on the world far after they're dead. And the influence that Immanuel Kant is a, a, has exercised on our world is hard to, I think, for many people to appreciate. Here, here's an easy, uh, I think, uh, illustration of the point. Karl Marx. Karl Marx has made a difference in your life. He really has. A bad one, but he has influenced your life. And uh, first came uh, Immanuel Kant, then came Marx. You could say that um, there is a thread of influence there, but I'm not going to explore that. But when it comes to the categorical imperative, it's been formulated in three ways. So the categorical imperative is... Uh, something that Mar uh, I mean, not Marx, but Kant developed in order to uh, have a framework for talking about living well and, and living ethically. And uh, there are three formulations of the imperative, but the one that I think applies to children as artillery is this one. Treat humanity 
in every case as an end in themselves, never as a means only. Children as artillery seems to violate this. <laughs> the idea that you know we're using our children as a means to an end would seem to be something that Immanuel uh, Kant would have a problem with. But the thing to keep in mind is even Kant qualified his statement with the word only. We're never ends exclusively. We are also means. Ends and means. And when we think about ends and means, when we talk about means, many, time we're, many times we're referring to uh, the ordinary means of grace, preaching, sacraments, so forth, when it comes to proclaiming the gospel and encouraging people to grow in grace. Uh, but the end, of course, is something uh, that we're aiming at. That's the target. The end is the target. It's the purpose. It's the telos. It's the goal. It's perfection. Now, one of the things, though, that we see in our world today is that when it comes to thinking about children and ends and means, there's a lot of uh, confusion. Uh, and one of the things that I think uh, we see happening, with, particularly with parents, is that parents have come to see the objective of parenting as being the happiness of the child. That's the end. That's the thing that we're all supposed to be shooting for when we think about children. And you know how it goes. If you watch you know, so some daytime television, you know, you'll hear parents, when they're talking about their children, say, I just want him or her or it, or whatever, to be happy. Happy is the goal. Then if you were to ask the follow-up question, which I think is a good thing to do, but never gets, seems to happen, and, and, and ask those folks to define happiness, they have no clue. Basically, happiness, if they kind of sum it up in any way at all, sounds like something Oprah Winfrey would say. I just want, you know, kind of a general feeling of, of sort of uh, self-satisfaction and and pleasure to kind of characterize the life of my child. And that's it. Whatever makes that happen is what I want for him or her or it or whatever. Now, um, what uh, these folks fail to appreciate is that very often people need to feel useful to be happy. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? If you've felt useless, was that like an epiphany? Wow, I'm useless. I feel great. No. Often you need to be able to do something for others and even for yourself if you're going to have a sense that uh, your life has purpose. And that, of course, is pretty important when it comes to the subject of happiness. Now, what I want to think about with you at this point is this theme, children as artillery, and how that's actually a good way to make your children feel happy, to help them see themselves and think of themselves as artillery. Now, one of my favorite psalms, it's already been quoted. Uh, Jared mentioned it, the 127th Psalm, where we're told that children are a heritage from the Lord. That's important. But we're also told that children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. That's the fourth verse. So you quoted the third verse. That's the fourth verse. This is where we get you know, the term quiverful. The quiverful movement is something that... Uh, swept through certain, uh, you know, sort of parts of the evangelical world uh, a little while back. Now, when we think about arrows, of course, arrows are for shooting. Uh, that's what they're made for. 
Uh, arrows have no choice in the matter. We don't ask arrows about their thoughts on the subject. Uh, we just shoot them. Arrows are for shooting. And I know that sounds militaristic, uh, and it is. Um, but uh, I think uh, at this point, bringing back Immanuel Kant, a common objection to the matter of a given purpose for anything, really, is that all given purposes are illegitimate. The only purposes that we should give ourselves to are the ones that we freely choose. And because of that, uh, we live in a world today where people can't think about given purposes any other way. Uh, given purposes are oppressive. Even when uh, those given purposes are hardwired into your body, uh, we shouldn't submit to those. We should exercise the power to choose even when it means denying our own physical constitutions. Male, female, he made them, right? Uh, one of the things that uh, I think animates and is the source of a great deal of the animus uh, behind the transgender movement is the hostility to given purposes, even those purposes woven into the very fabric of creation by the creator himself. People uh, look at that as oppressive. Uh, what we want is to choose our own purposes. But uh, what is our given purpose? I'd like to think about that with you a little bit. Not just in battle, but overall. What is the given purpose? We're told uh, in Romans that uh, we all fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of the glory of God. And by the way, um, this relates to the Greek word for sin, I think, in a marvelous way, harmatia, if you're not uh, familiar with the term, uh, literally means to miss the mark. So let's say you're an archer, you know, in the first century, and you spoke Koine Greek, and you were at a, a competition with other archers, and you, you know, fired your arrow at a target, and you missed, what would the uh, judge say? Harmatia, you've missed the mark. That's the word that we translate into the English word sin, the Greek word harmatia. So uh, we fall short of the glory of God, implying that the glory of God is the target. That's what we're shooting for, God's glory. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, turns this into a positive principle, or reformulates it, and we see it expressed as a positive principle there with the first question in the Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man. In other words, the given end. The given end is to glorify God, but it doesn't stop there. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And with that, we see ends and means reconciled in a beautiful way. It's not as though you, can, you have to choose between your duty and your joy. Your joy is your duty, and your duty is your joy. I know this is very difficult for us to, to uh, fully appreciate because we tend to think, as I noted, that these things are somehow mutually exclusive, but in God, they're reconciled. So we're creatures. We don't create ourselves, and because of that, we don't give ourselves our purposes. Uh, the purposes are given to us by the, by the fact that we are created for a purpose. And um, 
really, this is the way, this is what it means to be a creature. When you're, when you're a creature, everything is derived. In other words, everything is given. What do you have, Paul says, that you were not given? Everything that we have is given. And we work with what we've received. Here's a little exercise I, I like to use uh, to illustrate just how difficult it is to create something out of nothing. We, as human beings, create things in a, in a way that you know, it depends upon the things that we're given. Everything that we create is, in some sense, a mixture of given things. Uh, we rework things, and we don't create things out of nothing. We create things out of other things combined in novel ways. But to illustrate why that is the only choice we have, <laughs> try to imagine a primary color that is absolutely new, totally novel, not something that you've received. I'm not talking about, you know, like, the, you know, some kind of, you know, blending of primary colors like chartreuse or olive or something like that. I mean, something as primary as yellow, red, and blue. Something totally new. Can you do it? Even if you could, you couldn't describe it to the rest of us because none of us could imagine it. <laughs> you, you get what I'm getting at? We can't create things out of nothing, and yet that's what we as a society have given ourselves over to. We think we can create something out of nothing, but that's not something given to us to do. It's not something that's possible for us to do. We uh, are given things, and because we're given things, we can give things. We are loved by God. That's why we love God. God is our source. He's also our end. He's also the means. With all of these things in mind, one of the things that you need to tell your kids, one of the things that you need to, to demonstrate for them is what it means or what it looks like to love God uh, and to love other people and to demonstrate that you, know, you are uh, living your life to the glory of God and that you intend to to raise your children in a way that glorifies God as well. Your objective, in other words, is to use your children as a means of glorifying God uh, and that you have a target in mind, which is the glory of God. And one of the ways that we're told to do that here in the, in the 127th Psalm is that you love your kids by shooting them, <laughs> not with the way I just think maybe that came to mind, but you, you use your kids as the artillery to shoot their lives toward the goal that I've been describing, which is the glory of God. Now, I'd like to reflect with you a little bit uh, on the matter, of, uh, first of all, of having a quiver full of kids. Now, uh, obviously, the more arrows you have, the more you have to shoot, kind of follows, right? But obviously, the number you have is not entirely up to you. Think about Abram and Sarah. They had one. Uh, would they have liked more? Well, as you know, there was another, and that was a problem. But um, there had to be something that God could only do in order for this to come about. Now, I have three, and they're all grown and have spouses of their own and children of their own. 
I've got five grandchildren, so I'm at that point in life, and I'm happy to report that they're all on target. Um, if, if they weren't, I would feel very different about this talk. Um, I'm happy to uh, uh, announce that they are. I'd like to review uh, you know, the situation as it stands currently with you so that you have some sense of the context of my life. So I have two sons and a daughter. Now, we began having our children back in the, in the bad old days, the 1990s, and this was before uh, there was a lot of emphasis that we see, you know, sort of all around today on the importance of having children and having children early in life. So we were already 30 years old when our first was born. So the window of opportunity for us had uh, narrowed quite a bit by the time our first child was born. Uh, but our oldest son, Caleb, uh, has two daughters of his own. He's married to a lovely girl from Texas, from Houston, in fact, our oldest daughter-in-law. And they live in Nashville, and he's involved in the music industry. He's an audio engineer um, and is actually on staff at Covenant Presbyterian Church. You probably know about that church because it was in the news not too long ago. He was in the building when the shooting occurred. Uh, so we got the text and the description long before anybody else knew what was going on. So I've got sort of an inside, insider's uh, sort of perspective on all of that. But anyways, he's fine. Uh, they're fine. And the church actually is doing pretty well, all things considered. So that's my oldest son. My second son, uh, he is married as well. And by the way, my oldest son, uh, he and his wife own their house. So they've got, they own, they own uh, real estate. They own a house in Nashville, and he's gainfully employed and works for himself. My second son is a welder uh, and a steel fabricator and a blacksmith and lives in Hartford, Connecticut. He's 26 years old. He's a foreman in a large steel firm, the, the largest steel firm in New England, and uh, he has 30 men who report to him at 26. So he's doing pretty well. They own their own house. Uh, they have a, a baby and another one on the way. Uh, I'll be here in January. And he's doing great. Uh, again, they're believers. They love the Lord. Then my daughter uh, just was married here not too long back and already has uh, a child. And they live in the Hartford area in Connecticut as well. So uh, the children are all doing well and uh, flourishing. And, and I'd like to reflect a little bit upon you know, what uh, sort of contributed to that state of affairs. And I'll get to that in a minute. But when it comes to uh, this question of how many... Uh, to have, I think one question people have is, how many can I afford? And I was in a conversation with Kevin DeYoung not too long ago, who has, I believe, nine kids. And Kevin's uh, thought was, more than you think you can. <laughs> um, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Now, I've, in the church I serve right now, the median age in the church, our church is around 250 people. The median age is about, I'm not exaggerating, about 13 to 14. Uh, we've got that many kids. And... Uh, so my, my elders, uh, one has 13, another has 12, another has nine, and two have six. And that makes up a tiny fraction of the total child population in the church. <laughs> um, now, something to think about when it comes to this matter of how many can, you can afford. One of the things that I learned reading a book years ago that has been a marvelous book to reflect on over the years is a book entitled The Millionaire Next Door. Folks familiar with that book, The Millionaire Next Door? It's a great book. So it's a book about self-made millionaires. 95% of whom are men who are married and have more than three kids, three or more, which was an interesting thing to learn because I think that for many of us, we assume more or less the more kids you have, the poorer you are. 
But the way uh, men think, and this is something to keep in mind, the way men think is that if a man doesn't have someone to take care of and be responsible for, what does he do with himself? He watches television. <laughs> you know, he, he, he wastes his money on cars and things that depreciate rapidly. He doesn't think about the future very much. He's just simply kind of looking for pleasure in the moment. And that's where I'd be if I didn't have kids. And that's where most men would be when they don't have kids. It's when a man has the responsibility of caring for a wife and children that he starts to think about other people for a change and thinks about the long term and thinks about the welfare of those people in the long term. And what that does is it creates a kind of, well, necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> when you have that kind of necessity kind of looking at you all the time and expecting things from you, it has a way of getting you thinking and making sacrifices and making plans and taking risks. Now, they don't always work out, but when they do, they can work out very, very well. And that's why 95% of the self-made millionaires in the world are men with children to take care of. The other thing is that when you have a lot of kids, uh, they don't sit around and just take. They uh, are required to help as early as they can. So that's another valuable thing to keep in mind. Children join in the work early. Now, returning to the theme of war, I want to reflect on that a little bit before I get into some of the practical things I want to talk about. First thing to note is we are in a war. No matter what the Neville Chamberlains of the winsome world would like you to think, this is a world in which uh, we have some adversaries. Um, we have to keep that in mind. Um, you know, right at the beginning of the, of the Bible, we have that episode with the, with the serpent, and we're told that there would be enmity between uh, the children of the serpent and the woman's seed. Genesis, of course, chapter 3, verse 15. And we're told in, in James, friendship with the world is enmity toward God. In other words, if you try to make friends with the world, you make God your adversary. You've got to choose. You can't play Switzerland in this whole thing. You're on one side or the other. Do you remember that song by Bob Dylan, You Gotta Serve Somebody? Some of you remember it. Some of you, like, who's Bob Dylan? But anyway... Bob Dylan, you know, there's this great song, you know, you got to serve somebody. That was the refrain. And then, you know, the black choir would come in, you know, you got to serve somebody. And he'd say, you know, in that way that only Bob Dylan can, can speak, you may serve the devil or you may serve the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. And that's the thing we have to keep in mind. We've got to serve somebody. And if you think you're only serving yourself, guess which team you're on? Finally, uh, we're not the only ones with arrows. It's not as though the devil is just sitting over their mind in his own business and we go and pick a fight. No, there are fiery darts that he's firing all the time, and we're the target. That's something that uh, we shouldn't forget. Ephesians, you know, chapter 6, verses 12 and 16, we're told that uh, there are these fiery darts and we have a shield of that is uh, the shield of faith. We're told it's a shield that is constituted by faith, and I want to reflect on that with you a little bit. But unilateral disarmament is just simply foolish. If you just lay down your arms and say, that's it, I want to have peace with you, you join the other side, because as I noted before, that's what we were presented with. We either 
are with the Lord and serving him or we are uh, in league with his adversaries. Now these fiery darts, these arrows, how should we understand the, the, the nature of, of these arrows? Um, one of the things I think that is important to keep in mind is that in Scripture, the devil is referred to as the accuser, the accuser of the brethren. Are you familiar with that allusion? But uh, these, these also, we're also told that, there's, that the devil is diabolical. Now, the word diabolical has an interesting provenance. Uh, it's, a, it's a compound word in Greek, dia, meaning through, uh, and balo, where we get the word ballistic, uh, means to throw. So in other words, the objective is to throw something at you and through you, <laughs> you know, to take you out. What is it that is being directed toward us? Well, accusations. Now, I know that sometimes when people note this, they more or less, as, you know, I think uh, it's, un it's understandable that Reformed people would do this. The way, the way they think of this is that, you know, these, these accusations that are being directed toward us are based in some fact, we are sinful, and they're intended to undermine our confidence in our salvation. And I think that's a fair interpretation. But if we look at Scripture and, and, and think about this particular um, mode of attack, I think it's, it, we can see some subtleties that perhaps we overlook. One of those is that in the garden, the temptation that we see described uh, for us in that dialogue between Eve and, and the serpent the accusations were directed toward whom? God. In other words, they were intended to impugn God's character and undermine the confidence of Adam and Eve in God and his promises. And that's why a shield of faith is something that extinguishes those things. If you look at Job, if you remember, you know, we have an, a set of accusations in the book of Job. Remember the opening to, to Job? You know, here we have the high court, the Lord upon the throne, the, you know, the courtiers all around, and who saunters into the court at this point? None other than the accuser. And the Lord says, well, what have you been up to? Oh, this and that, been here and there. And then the Lord does what? He brings up Job. Now, I wish, you know, if I were Job, I'd say, why did you bring me into this? You know? <laughs> Right? But, you know, he says, have you considered Job? And then the accuser accuses Job and accuses the Lord, right, of wrongdoing. Well, the only reason why this guy, you know, is so devoted to you is because you, you treat him with kit gloves. You're nice to him all the time. I mean, look at the guy. He's got it all. He's got it made. He's got big family. He's got wealth. He's got all this stuff going for him. If you just simply let me get at him for a little bit, he will curse you to your face. And that's the bet. And what's interesting about how the story ends is that even at the end of the story, Job is never let in on what this was all about. <laughs> but he was God's champion in this conflict. And the accusations took the form of, eventually, uh, other things in Job's case. And this is why we need a shield of faith. Now, we live in a world that believes the lies. We live in a world that is uh, characterized by a kind of miasma. Uh, the atmosphere is just poisonous, and uh, the prince of the power of the air is the reason for that. Uh, but because of that, falsehood fills the air, and people 
uh, believe what they've been told. I, I really do believe that there is a, a direct connection, uh, and this is scriptural, between what we believe and how we behave. If you want to know what a person really believes, just watch how they behave. That's the demo- that demonstrates what they really, that's what James was getting at, right? Now, getting back to the matter of uh, children as artillery. <laughs> What are we aiming at? As I noted, the glory of God. Uh, The target for our arrows uh, is the glory of God, and our arrows are our children. Now, what I have to to, uh, present to you at this time is a a brief series of suggestions. I I hesitate to call them instructions. They're based on Scripture, but they're also based on observation and personal experience. So with those things in mind, I'm going to run through a few things with you, and hopefully they'll be helpful. These things will be helpful. So when we think about our children, and, as we, and if we think about them as arrows that we are uh, using to uh, direct toward the glory of God and aim at the glory of God, I think we need to sharpen them. We need to sharpen them. Uh, we need to hone them, and, and what we're looking to do is to uh, develop them and develop their virtues. Now, uh, the virtue, when we think of the term virtue, I think that there are a number of things that we associate with that term that I'd like to reflect on with you a little bit about. Uh, but one of the things that I want you to know is that when the, uh, in antiquity, uh, when the term virtue was, was uh, used, uh, it wasn't used in some of the ways that we tend to use it today. Uh, for example, in Aristotle, we're told that the virtue of the knife is in the cutting. In other words, a dull knife is a non-virtuous knife. A sharp knife is a virtuous knife. So in other words, there's a sense in which virtue is associated with the effect and its its ability to accomplish its intended purpose. Uh, Another word that is used uh, in association with virtue is arete, which is uh, excellence. But another thing to keep in mind is the very word virtue itself. Are Are you aware that is, it is derived from the Latin vir from man. So a vir- virtue uh, originally uh, was associated with manliness, particularly with martial uh, sort of understandings of manliness. So kind of give you kind of the background uh, to help you understand how virtue has come to mean what we mean when we use the term today. <coughs> a virtuous man would be a, a warrior who was effective uh, at fighting. So if you were to list the things that you would associate with a effective warrior, you know, there would be a set of characteristics that come to mind. You know, strength, for example. Strength would be something that we would say helps, is consti- constitutive when it comes to effectiveness in combat. And if you just simply play this out, you can make a list of things that you would look for if you were a recruiter looking for men who could fight, including things that we might not associate with virtue. For example, shrewdness. A shrewd warrior is a more effective warrior than a naive and clumsy one, right? So therefore, shrewdness is virtuous in a warrior. Now, after a while, people realize you can make lists for just about anything. So what do you want? 
We want a good potter. So what do you want in a potter? You want somebody who's good with his hands. You want somebody who has a good eye. You want somebody who has some good taste. And you can make a list of things that you say characterize a good potter. Housewife. What do you look for in a housewife? What are the things that would characterize a good housewife? You can make a list. You can just kind of go through, you know, the set of things that people do or a list of things that people do and create lists for each of them. And then suddenly somebody had the bright idea of, of, of identifying things that you'd want to have characterize everyone. These were the moral virtues. And Socrates is the one who's attributed with that move. So what do we want everyone to be good at? These are the things that we universally apply to everyone. And those are moral virtues, and those are tremendously important. And so uh, we want to develop moral virtue in our children, but that kind of thing does not exhaust what we're up to when we're looking to sharpen or hone our children for this task of glorifying God. There are other lists or other categories for example, practical virtue. Have you met, ever met somebody who was just really honest, really nice, really good-hearted, and an absolute dolt when it came to like social graces? I can think of a lot of them. <laughs> well, you don't want that. In other words, you've got a well-developed moral sense and zero practical sense. Moral virtue without practical virtue. We don't want that. We want both. Uh, intellectual virtue, that's another category that was uh, examined and, and thought deeply about in antiquity. Uh, that's just the kid who aces all the tests, who is able to memorize things quickly and well, who can diagram a sentence like nobody's business, you know, that kind of thing. Intellectual virtues are important. And martial virtue is important as well. The ability to stand up for yourself and stand up for others and stand up for the truth. These things tend to go together. A person who is cowardly in one sphere might be able to demonstrate some virtue, martial virtue in another, but often these things can be found uh, together in the same person. Now, I want to uh, address something that I think we all more or less no, and that is uh, when it comes to the vir virtues, um, mothers tend to focus on the moral and intellectual virtues. This is why they make great, you know, homeschool teachers. <laughs> they're concerned with, you know, children uh, being honest, doing what they're told. They're concerned with the, their, the performance of their children on tests and so forth. You remember the tiger mom phenomenon? You know, the tiger mom phenomenon was something that had been observed by people who were not from, uh, you know, the Orient, but were looking on the sort of the achievements of children who are from China or even India. And there's just sort of this astonishment that we all have because we're outsiders looking in. And why do these kids, you know, finish at the top of their class? Well, it's tiger mom. It's tiger mom's why. And by the way, my wife teaches piano, and she's taught hundreds of students over the years, and many of them are from the East, uh, China, Korea, India. And let me tell you something. Those kids really do perform at a pretty high level. And you want to know why? It's because not only is Tiger Mom, but Lion Dad <laughs> is on them all the time. 
I remember this one particular episode with my wife. She was uh, teaching an, a, a, a girl from Kerala, which is a which is a part as a province in India, and the father would just stand there the entire time while the lesson was being conducted, and you knew that he was listening very closely to every instruction my wife gave to that child. And you knew that that guy was remembering everything she said and that that would be repeated every day while she practiced over the course of the week. He knew what she was supposed to do and he was gonna make sure that she did it. And that's one of the big reasons why Indian kids and Chinese kids and Korean kids do so well is they have high expectations for the kids and tiger mom and lion dad uh, are on the job. Something to learn there. Um, But uh, there are important things that are left out uh, when we think about these things. And I often think that fathers are the appropriate schoolmasters in households when it comes to these matters. Practical and martial virtues, I think, are the areas where Fathers should step in. One of the things that's been really fascinating to see uh, demonstrated through the application of social science on uh, uh, Christian life and uh, home life in particular is the causal relationship that's been identified between the faith of the father and the faith of the children. This is one of those things that I don't think gets out uh, as... uh, well as it, as it should get out. Um, there's a very strong correlation between the faith of a father and the faith of his children. A far greater impact than the mother has on the faith of children. Now, I don't want to discourage moms in this regard. What I'm trying to do is put the pressure on you, dad. I mean, the numbers are skewed in such a way to, as to almost seem unbelievable. Um, there is a marvelous uh, article, and this is what you this is what happens when you're trying to operate from, you know, sort of off the top of your head, trying to remember things. But there's a marvelous article in Touchstone Magazine on this particular subject, and I encourage you to look it up because it gets into the numbers. There was a study done in Switzerland, of all places, in the early 1990s. And what it was able to ascertain is that when uh, a mother, a believing mother, takes a child to church consistently over the 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 early years of a child's life, the likelihood of that child becoming a believing member of that church is like less than 20%. But if the father does it, even without the presence of the mother, it goes up to like 80%. That kind of difference in impact. And I think it's because, dads, our children look at us when it comes to how to conduct yourself in the world at large. Mom may run the daily affairs of the house and be loved for that and respected for that, but children generally don't look to their mothers to know how to behave at work or how to conduct yourself when you are negotiating with a used car salesman, (laughs) that kind of stuff. They tend to look at us, whether we feel up to the task or not they associate adulthood and life in the world with us. And that's why we have to take you know, the time and invest the energy, particularly on these practical matters. This is how you do this. This is how you do that. Have you seen that YouTube channel uh, with that guy who didn't grow up with a father who decided he was going to teach other people everything that he wasn't taught? 
He's got like millions of people who watch him every episode. And he's like the most honest, he's like Mr. Rogers of dadness. You know, just about as just bland and just as everyday as you could possibly be. Today we're going to learn how to change oil. Oh boy. We're going to learn how to get into the car and get ourselves completely covered with greasy stuff. Great. And then he shows you how to do it. That's what our kids need from us. We, they need us to take them along with us when we're doing stuff. Not necessarily just to kind of get the, the lesson. Let me tell you what I just did, Junior. But to actually watch us in action. That kind of practical instruction is really important. Not just for sons, but daughters as well. So let me give you a list of things that I think are virtues that uh, a father should work on that uh, are practical and martial in character. One of those is tolerance of pain. Tolerance of pain. It's hard to get anything done in this world without a lot of frustration and pain. <laughs> and uh, that doesn't mean that you're unfeeling. It doesn't mean that you're a jerk. It doesn't mean that you inflict pain on other people unnecessarily. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. It just means that you can put up with a lot. You need to be able to demonstrate it, that you can put up with a lot, and that you don't get squeamish, and you're not afraid that this is something that should characterize any capable, competent person, an ability to endure pain. Because we live in a world full of thorns and thistles. There's a lot of stuff out there that hurts, and you need to be able to deal with it. This is not, you know, stoic. This is just simply real. You got to be able to deal with pain. And we need to be able to help our kids with that, which means that we don't coddle them. Like when I was a, when I was a kid uh, and I fell down and hurt myself, the question I was asked is, is how's the floor doing? <laughs> it was like no like, interest in whether, I mean, I, I remember being mad. What about me? Yeah, what about you? Get over it. Let's move on. Let's not just fixate on this stuff. You need to move on. Connected to this, but important, uh, in, in, in different in important ways, is good judgment. We need to help children exercise good judgment. In the course of our lives, there's no getting away from judgment. This idea that we can live a non-judgmental life is just foolishness. Every day, I make judgments about what I should eat, how long I should sleep, how much I should drink, who I should spend time with, how fast I should drive on the highway. I make judgments every single day of my life. When it comes to judgment, there is no, I'll put it this way. I remember Richard John, who asked the editor at First Things, he said it this way. He said, a life without judgment is a life without meaning. When you, make, when you, when you judge, you are saying, this is better than that. Now, when it comes to the matter of you know, Jesus saying, judge, uh, not so that you won't be judged. Well, there's some thing to note that I think uh, is, I think, obvious there. If you're a judgmental person, you will be judged uh, harshly yourself. So the thing to keep in mind is that mercy is also a form of judgment. So there are times when you're merciful because that is the best thing to do at that particular moment. You're exercising judgment as you are demonstrating mercy. Mercy is not like, you know, okay, judgment is off. We're in the judgment-free zone, <laughs> you know, right? 
you know, you, you see that. Yeah, you've seen those commercials for gyms, you know, judgment-free zone. Like, right, yeah, why are you going to the gym in the first place? Because you made the judgment, you're out of shape. That's why you, went, you, went the, you don't like push weights and, and run on treadmills because you like that sort of thing, which brings me back to my earlier point about enduring pain. But anyway, so, and related to this is risk assessment. We live in a world right now that is risk-averse, but there is no such thing as a risk-free life. In fact, the riskiest way to live is to avoid all risk. It's stupid. You're going to fail for sure <laughs> if you don't uh, make a calculated risk in the course of your life. Just because you don't do something doesn't mean you've done nothing. You've done something which is nothing. <laughs> and that is a foolish thing to do. You've taken a bad risk. You need to assess risks, exercise judgment, and as best you can, make good judgments. So helping your kids assess things and courses of action and exercise good judgment is part of what I think we need to focus on as fathers. Mastery. Mastery. We should simply be good at certain things, and we should strive for excellence uh, in certain. Now, you can't be good at everything. You know, basically, I think the, the best way to approach things is you put things into three categories. There are the sort of, you know, whatever stuff. You know, I don't think I'll ever learn how to hand churn ice cream. I think people who hand churn ice cream are awesome, but I'm just not going to do that. <laughs> you know, whatever. Then there are things that you're, you're passably good at passably good at. I can wire a room, uh, but don't ask me to wire a, a breaker box, right? But, you know, there are things that I can do passably. And then there are a few things that I strive to be a master of. And those are the things that people pay me the bucks for. <laughs> you get my, my drift. Those are the things that people turn to me for help with those things. The passable stuff, those are the things that I can do for myself when I'm not in a position to pay somebody else to do them. And really, that's probably more often the case than, than I think we, we tend to think. And then there are things that we can just say, whatever. I'm glad for somebody else to be good at that. But we should at least uh, get our kids to think about what do you want to master? What do you want to focus on being really good at? And work with our kids on that. I remember my oldest son, who's a really accomplished musician, he was also an athlete. So he was one of these marvelous anomalies. He was an athlete and a musician at the same time. And uh, he decided that uh, he probably wasn't going to be a major league baseball player. Uh, so it'd be probably better to actually be able to play some music because at least there'd be some places where he could do that. And now he makes his living uh, in that industry. But I remember early on, it was during the days of, of Guitar Hero. Do you remember Guitar Hero? It's where you could like pretend that you were a great guitarist. Basically, you're playing air guitar, but you sounded like, you know, like you were like in, you know, Aerosmith or something. Well, he told me one day, he said, I, I don't know why all my friends are into that thing. Why don't they just learn to play guitar? So he did. <laughs> Learned how to play guitar. Anything with strings, he can play it now. Um, so mastery, courage. Courage is another thing that I think we need to work with our kids on. By the way, we're all afraid of something. We're all afraid of stuff. 
the, 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 what we're not looking at, we're not, we're not looking for people who are reckless and uh, willing to do anything at any time. We're, we're looking for, what we want to develop is good judgment so that our children can know when it's appropriate to exercise some courage and take that risk, that think, doing something that's courageous in character. So we're not uh, looking for, as I noted, uh, recklessness. With boys, and I, and I think any father here uh, understands what I'm, gonna, what I'm getting at when I say this. With boys, we want to uh, develop manliness. It's just kind of a thing you know. When you come across another man as a man, you kind of assess, is this a guy that I can re respect? And then there are some things that you can do that are nonverbal in nature to demonstrate that you are trustworthy as a man. And those are things that we want to help our sons with. You know, there, there are you know, subtle nonverbal clues. There are other things, being able to look people in the eye, firm handshake, that kind of stuff. Forthrightness, being able to just say things the way they should be said, when they should be said, being able to be direct without being caustic or offensive, but just simply direct, that kind of forthrightness I think we want to to develop magnanimity, great souledness, this sense of uh, plenitude that we as men should be able to, to in some sense, uh, exemplify, where we have it within ourselves not to be petty, not to be vindictive, not to be um, uh, small-minded and vengeful, uh, magnanimity. Protectiveness, I think that a, a man should be protective of the people who are around him that are not in a position to protect themselves. There's nothing shameful about finding yourself in a position where you're not able to protect yourself. But if you're in a position to protect somebody else because you have the resources to do so, you have a moral obligation to do it if other people nearby are threatened. It's something that we should develop in our, our sons, um, but our daughters as well. And then wisdom. Wisdom and intelligence aren't necessarily found in the same person. I don't know if you've noticed this. Basically, what you have with the, with the story of Forrest Gump is a guy who wasn't very intelligent, but who was very wise. Wisdom and intelligence, different things, but we ought to be able to develop uh, and grow in wisdom. Have you ever thought about, you know, when you think about the Lord of the Rings, who's the hero? Who's the hero? I think our minds immediately go to Frodo, you know, or to Gandalf or to Aragorn. But I propose to you that Sam is the hero, the Lord of the Rings. A man who was wise, but simple. In fact, his simplicity was, this, was the source of wisdom for him. It was like a reality check. Remember when he had the ring briefly and he had this fantasy of becoming Sam the Great, the Sam the Great warrior, and then he corrects himself, says, Sam, what are you doing? You're just Sam the gardener. <laughs> but in that moment, he was great. He demonstrated great wisdom, more wisdom than many others who were far more powerful than he was, uh, uh, who didn't possess that wisdom. Now, so that's the first thing. I think we should sharpen our children uh, and prepare them to be launched. <laughs> But I think a couple of other things to note as I wrap up. One is that you need to know your weapons, which means you have to think about 
what is this child made for? What is this child made for? Yeah, I mean, we have this very large target called the glory of God, right? But this particular child is going to glorify God in a particular way, and you need to be able to work with that child and help that child understand his or her purpose and how that's going to be accomplished. Now, uh, in order for this to happen, you need to have a small measure of knowledge about a wide range of things so that you have some sense of what may be uh, you know, in store for your son or daughter. And at the same time, you'll need to study your own child in depth. Make your child an object of study, not just somebody to like boss around and uh, tolerate. <laughs> What is this child made for? What are the talents this child possesses? How might those talents be encouraged and developed? I remember my, my second son, who's very bright, but is not academically uh, sort of, uh, I guess, oriented. We're all into orientation these days. You know? you know, I'm not academically oriented. But anyway, he wasn't. Uh, but he, when he was small, uh, so he was, he was, you know, uh, he looked like uh, the, sp the spitting image of his older brother. In fact, you know, if, he, if they had been born at the same time, they would have been, you know, you would have thought they were identical twins when they were small. But my older son, he became the tall, thin one and uh, excelled in baseball and basketball and things like that. My second son, uh, he had zero interest in sports. None. He liked knocking things over. <laughs> He liked building things. And I noticed early on that even though he didn't have macro coordination, he had micro coordination. He was able to make things uh, that were really astonishing at an early age. And I saved some of them to his embarrassment. And, uh, but I would give him tasks. And one of the things I saw is that when I would give him a task, he would, he would step back and he would look at the job. I'm talking about physical work. Figure out the quickest way, the most efficient use of his time and energy to get it done, and then he'd get it done in no time at all, right? I was not like that. I, I was a framer, uh, a deck builder, and my boss would always complain about how inefficient my movements were because I, I was a ditherer. You know, I'd, I'd work on something, I'd stand back and think about it for a little bit, and then I'd correct myself in the middle of it, and I'd start over again. You know, I was, I was definitely a, 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 you know, a, a money sink, one of, my, one of my bosses, he said, I wish I had like a gauge on your forehead that I could see how much money I'm losing on you every minute. You know, that, was, that was me. When I saw my son in action, I said, this kid is made for the trades. This kid is made for the trades. And when he got out of high school, we, went out to, we would go out to you know, breakfast like once a month, eat too many pancakes, that kind of thing. And he said, Dad, you know, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, you need to go to trade school. I said, yeah, why don't you take a gap year, go to trade school, learn something, and then go to college and see how, you know, see how that goes. He says, what, should, what do you think I should study? I said, welding. Something dangerous. Because if you, if you like study something that's like not dangerous, other people think they can do it, and then you're, you know, if they ever, ever bring you into the job, it's like you're kind of fixing a mess. But if they're afraid to try it themselves, then they just call you. So you want to learn something dangerous. And so I said, okay. So... That's what he did. So now, now uh, he's very good at, at his work. As I noted before, he's a foreman. But uh, so you study your ch children. Uh, now it's nice when your children have the same interests as you. It's great. 
And I'm, I'm happy to say that in each case, there's an interest that I share with my children. But not all of the things uh, that they're interested in, I have a great deal of interest in. But I try to be informed. I try to be supportive. I try to, you know, uh, encourage the, their development in those areas. At this point, you know, they're adults and they don't need that from me anymore. Basically, I need them. I'm the one who's calling them up for advice now. It's a nice place to be in in life where, you, where your children are giving you advice. And that's where I'm at. But uh, if they do choose the same occupation as you, pray that they surpass you. I can't tell you the number of guys I've met over the years who are threatened by their boys. Threatened that their boys will be better than them. You know what? If you are that small, you should be ashamed of yourself. Get over yourself. Delight in the achievements of your children and pray that they will go further than you. That's a legacy. Something that we should all hope for. Which brings me to my final point, prayer. Once the arrow is launched, it's launched, baby. There's not like going, running after it like Bugs Bunny and blowing on it and trying to redirect it at that point. It's gone. The child is launched. At that point, though, you can continue to have an influence in their lives, but that influence is largely spiritual in character, and prayer is what... Uh, should have characterized your entire work as a father or a mother all the way along. But ultimately, you're not in charge. You're a middleman. Embrace the middleman concept. You are a middleman. There is upper management, and then there's you. Upper management is up, <laughs> and it's managing stuff. And your job as the middleman is to represent upper management to the people on the line, the kids, the wife, whatever, uh, and to intercede for them, seeking favor, seeking favor from upper management in the interest of your subjects, in the interest of your kids. This is what we saw Job doing, right? He knew his kids, and that's why he thought, maybe they sinned. I don't know, I wasn't at the party. They never invite me. <laughs> but knowing those kids, I think uh, some sacrifices ought to be made right now. I'm going to be praying for these kids. And that's something that we should do on an ongoing basis. And obviously, we should seek you know, things in their proper order, salvation, growth and grace. These are things that we should be praying for for our kids. We should be uh, asking God to make the callings uh, of our children clear. We're Reformed. We believe that every vocation, that's what vocation means, calling, is a calling. You know, so my son is serving the Lord uh, as a foreman at United Steel. That's his calling. What's fun is that his brother-in-law now works for him. <laughs> Reports to him every day. But uh, anyway, uh, then uh, we should be praying that they establish households of their own. This is something that we need to relearn in the West. In other parts of the world, the formation of households is primarily a father's responsibility. The father is involved with making sure his sons and daughters form new households. Now, I'm not saying we need to bring back arranged marriage or anything like that, but we need to be more proactive 
Let me give you a couple of stories as I conclude. My daughter, very bright, scored in the top 1% in the SAT on both the math and the language. She could have gone to school anywhere. And uh, she didn't want to go to college. Her aspiration was to be you know, a mom and, and to have a family of her own. And I said, sweetie, you are so smart. Uh, there's nobody in your Sunday school class that makes a good match. Where do you think you're going to find this super smart guy that you're going to be able to respect? She said, probably college. I said, that's right. You're going to go to college. So I sent her to college, not because I wanted her to be a career woman and be a success. Because I sent her to college because I wanted her to get married and be a success. And I knew that's where the pool uh, of bright young men was likely to be found. So she asked me, what, what, what should I study? I said, physics. You'll be the only girl in the entire program. <laughs> I did. I, this is what I, my advice to her. And you'll be surrounded by a lot of socially inept men who will love you and are going to make a lot of money. That was, that was my... That was my suggestion to her. <laughs> so my, my daughter looked back at me and said, no, I don't want to do that. I said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to study Jane Austen. I said, well, of course. <laughs> you and every smart girl in America want to study Jane Austen. And you know, the guys who are in the Jane Austen program are not guys that I'm going to approve of. So I actually had to turn one of them away. I said, no, baby, that's, that's not going to work. Sweetie, that guy goes home. Back to go starting over. But anyway, she did find the, the right guy. And after she found the right guy, it was in her, she was in her senior year. And she, there was no good prospects. And she said, I think I'm going to have to settle for being an academic. Think about that. That was the consolation prize in her mind. So I just started praying and praying and praying. And next thing you know, there was this guy. And now they're married. My daughter asked me, Dad, were you praying for me? I said, yep. I was praying for you. So I pray for my kids all the time, and they know it. And they want it. You know, you don't want to be that parent who says, I'm praying for you. Like when the kid is being disobedient, oh, mom, stop praying. Don't do it. You know, that's the kind of thing you get if it's all about correction, right? Sometimes when kids hear, I'm praying for you, that's what they're hearing. This is a, kind of a, this is like a, uh, oh, what's that term? Uh, passive, uh, aggressive. It's a passive, aggressive way for moms to control their kids. I'm praying for you. <laughs> Guilt trip time, right? Pray for them. And pray in such a way as they want you to be praying for them. Praying for their success. Praying for their futures. Praying for their uh, vocations. Praying for their future spouse. Pray for those things. And then check in with them every once in a while. How's it going? What's going on? I need to know what's going on so I have a better sense of how they should be praying. And fast and pray. That's... I think the most important thing of all, if we invest ourselves and our kids in these ways, then I think the prospects of hitting the target improve immensely. Thank you.